Hey there, welcome back to The Kicker, CGR's weekly podcast about journalism and media. I'm Dave Uberti, a staff writer for the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, we'll start with a news rundown to help you cut through the noise cluttering up your Twitter and Facebook feeds. All of us are having difficulty following the news, and we thought it'd be a good idea to help you digest what the stories that we are following in the media industry. Then we will talk about Berkshire Hathaway and the newspapers bought by Warren Buffett in 2012. We will have an update from our correspondent who's been following some pretty bleak news out of local newsrooms across the country there. And then finally, we will turn to Facebook and specifically look at a murder that was broadcast on its platform on Sunday, what the tech platform is doing in response and what it says about its future responsibility in curating content on the platform. First up, if you're like me, you're having trouble following the news. I actually wrote a piece for CGR.org last week arguing that Donald Trump killed the news cycle. There's been a confluence of factors, namely social media and the speed and confusion with which the White House has pursued its agenda that's made everyone feel a little bit overwhelmed by the information coming at us. So we thought it was a good idea to give you a little bit of a summary of the stories that we at CGR have been watching this week within the media sphere. And, and joining me now to help me break through that noise is Pete Vernon, a Delacorte fellow for CGR. Pete, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me back. So what are some of the things that you've been keeping your eye on this week? There's a lot going on, so uh, I, could, I could use the North Star here. Grant, I'll be your uh, your Virgil through the underworld of the news cycle wow, this that was, week. That was quite a reference right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was an English major. <laughs> right. That's the thing that happens. Right. Uh, so one of the big stories that's been kind of unfolding as the week goes along is Bill O'Reilly's future at Fox News. We've been seeing reports even up to within the last hour that his time is coming to an end, and some of the conversation has actually moved on to who his successor is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been rumblings about this over the last several months since Roger Ailes was ousted last year in his own sexual harassment case. And it was really broken open by a very in-depth New York Times investigation published in the last couple of weeks, maybe a month ago or so, basically alleging that the scale or breadth of Bill O'Reilly's sexual harassment allegations was much broader than any of us had had really anticipated. Right. And this is one of those things where there was some rumblings, as you said, about this in the past. He had a very public divorce. Fox News obviously went through a period last summer where it was doing an internal investigation. But this specific situation really started on April 1st with a New York Times story by Emily Steele and Michael Schmidt reporting that Fox News had paid out $13 million in settlements to five women who had brought allegations of sexual harassment or otherwise inappropriate behavior by Bill O'Reilly. There have since been more allegations. O'Reilly is currently on vacation in Italy, Hmm. and his future is in the balance. If I ever got canned, I would hope it would be from an Italian villa. (laughs) But just to go over the last year quickly here, Fox News, the largest cable news organization in the country, has lost Roger Ailes, sort of its heart and soul from the programming side. And some of its biggest stars, including Greta Van Susteren, Megyn Kelly, and now potentially Bill O'Reilly, who is the king of cable news. Right. And by the time people are listening to this tomorrow morning, it might already be announced that he is on his way out. Uh, I think that's what everybody's expecting. There's supposed to be a board meeting tomorrow, which will be Thursday, to discuss his future and to pave the way. Of course, he just signed a big contract, so they have to figure out money. Roger Ailes got $40 million on his way out the door, so O'Reilly can expect a payday, if not a, a return to his show. Golden parachute. All right, what else are you watching? I mean, I think one of the other big stories, and this has, there's a few different pieces, but this is something that's been building, is White House transparency. We heard this week 
or was it the end of last week, that the White House will not be releasing its visitor logs, right? That was a Friday news mm-hmm. dump on Good Friday. Right. And then there was this strange and kind of unbelievable story that the Armada was, in fact, not headed towards North Korea. The Armada. Yeah, that the USS Carl Vinson and a fleet of warships uh, was supposed to be headed towards North Korea to put a scare in the leadership there in response to some of their nuclear testing and military buildup, when in fact it was actually headed in the opposite direction to perform some sort of maneuvers with the Australian Navy. It has now turned around and is headed back there, uh, but there was some miscommunication that you know might just be a symptom of a chaotic White House that is lacking in kind of a centralized communications overseer, but it comes on the heels of some of these other issues like Donald Trump not releasing his taxes, like the visitor logs not being released, that makes it seem like there's something more going on, something almost nefarious, which in this case it might not be. It might have just been a screw up. Right. And obviously the Trump administration is following the self-proclaimed most transparent administration in the world in the Obama White House. Obviously it's a highly debatable argument to be made, but it at least seems to this point that Trump and his aides aren't even paying lip service to that notion of transparency. Right. We had the tax day marches uh, in several cities around the country protesting Donald Trump's decision not to release his taxes. He's claimed that's because he's under audit, which does not mean he can't, but he now as president will automatically be under audit every year that he is in office. So he has a built-in excuse if that's what he's going to stick with. I love built-in excuses. All right. Finally, what are you looking at for your third story? The third big story this week, we saw it happening last night, is the special election in Georgia in the 6th District, which is a suburban district outside of Atlanta, to fill the seat left vacant by Tom Price, who became the Health and Human Services Secretary. It was a matchup of 18 candidates in a a special election. There was one front-running Democrat candidate, John Ossoff, a 30-year-old former congressional staffer who was also a documentary filmmaker. He's from the district, although he currently lives just outside its borders. With his girlfriend. Right. And he had to get over 50% of the vote in order to avoid a runoff. He finished just short of that against a crowded field of Republicans. The leading vote getter in that field received less than 20% of the vote. But Ossoff will now have to face Karen Handel, who was the second leading vote getter and the leading Republican vote getter in an election on June 20th. Right. And there was just an insane amount of media attention on this single special election in, in the Georgia congressional seat. Uh, I read a New York Magazine in-depth profile of Ossoff. The New York Times had a, a live blog with maybe four reporters on it last night. BuzzFeed had a live video stream sort of going through the results for this one seat. Why, why was there so much attention given to this? I mean, I think, as you said in your piece about the news cycle, it's Trump, right? This was seen as the first real referendum on the Trump presidency. This district is traditionally solidly Republican. It's launched the careers of Newt Gingrich, Tom Price, obviously. But Donald Trump only carried it by just over a percentage point compared to Mitt Romney, who won it by more than 20. And so this this election was seen as a chance for Democrats to really get out the vote and show that there's going to be uh, political resistance to Donald Trump. And we saw that in the money raised. John Ossoff raised more than $8 million. And the Republicans responded in the closing weeks of the campaign with a huge ad buy to try and push back against that. Right. The point being that this is a potential bellwether for the 2018 midterms. That's obviously up in the air. We'll leave it to the pundits to decide. Pete Vernon, thanks for being on the show to help us break through the noise. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. (laughs) 
Berkshire Hathaway Media, part of the conglomerate run by legendary investor and Jay-Z acquaintance Warren Buffett, announced earlier this month that it would slash nearly 300 jobs across its 31 daily and 50 weekly newspapers nationwide. Newspapers including the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the Tulsa World, and many smaller properties. It was seen by many as a stunning rebuke of the investing wizard Buffett. And here with me now to discuss what it says about the state of local journalism is Corey Hutchins, a Colorado-based correspondent and local news aficionado for CGR's United States Project. Corey, thanks for being on. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. So Berkshire Hathaway got into the newspaper business, what, what was it now, five years ago. What was the reasons that were given for them to invest in an ostensibly struggling industry? And how was that information received at the time? Well... <laughs> we at CJR, I think the headline that we wrote that week when uh, Warren Buffett announced he was going to spend about $142 million to purchase 63 newspapers, local newspapers across the country, our headline was, what Warren Buffett sees in local newspapers. So basically, we asked, like, does he see something we don't? Right. Uh, 2012 was, you know, right in the middle. I mean, that was right. The, the, the bottom had fallen out of the uh, newspaper business model. So it was like seen as a really bright spot because I can just picture my dad saying like, hey, if Warren Buffett is <laughs> bullish on right. newspapers, you know, I'm glad you're in the business, kid. Right. You know? um, and so, you know, he said you know, his public comments were at the time and, and even I think shortly after that, that he believed in the value of local newspapers. Right. His direct quote was, uh, anytime we can add properties we like to management we like at a price we like, we're ready to go. Right. Um, that's what he told the Omaha World Herald. He, he actually bought that. That's his hometown newspaper. Right. He actually bought that first, and then he bought uh, that string of other companies. And the, invest the uh, investment so was very focused on local properties, correct? Yeah, that's right. And so the kind of narrative, I think, that formed after that was that um, local newspapers weren't going to be as afflicted or shaped by negative industry trends as large publications were, and that we shouldn't take what was happening back then at the New York Times um, and other large newspapers. We shouldn't try and extrapolate that and say, well, those same problems are happening to local newspapers. Local newspapers are really embedded in their own communities. Oftentimes, don't have to smaller newspapers and smaller markets don't have to compete with broadcast stations, for instance. Sure. In a lot in a lot of instances, you know, and and they'll serve kind of older readers who live in the community that still you know, buy and want the the printed paper and walk to the end of their driveway to get it every day. Right. Uh, and that was kind of I mean that was CJR's take at the time, and I think you know a lot of media watchers just kind of trusted. Warren Buffett. He has an amazing reputation. Right. His, his investment. He must know what he's doing. Of, yeah, it's, it's long hold. You know, buy low, sell high, hold long, and invest in, in entities that are going to be around for a while. So that was how the news was taken back in 2012. Right. And you know, now just to give a speed through of what happened since then. Obviously, the advertising industry was really sort of affected at the national level at the start of the downturn, maybe 10 years ago or so. Retail advertising maintained some strength throughout that period, especially after the financial recession. But over the last couple of years, retail, which is the backbone of local newspaper advertising, has really taken a huge hit. I think I recall a New York Times article yesterday saying there's been something like 90,000 jobs lost in retail in the last six months alone across the United States, which just gives a sense 
of sort of the dire straits of brick and mortar stores that most often advertise in your local newspaper. And so obviously the Berkshire Hathaway owned papers now are feeling sort of the after effects of that downturn. So Corey, you wrote a great piece for CGR.org last week. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what's happening within those newspapers, what they're doing now and, and what the look ahead is like. Yeah, well, what you just said, basically, you might as well have been reading from the memos of publishers across the country explaining to their staff why Berkshire Hathaway is laying off employees left and right. These papers owned by uh, Warren Buffett's newspaper company laid off just about 300 staffers at these newspapers. And I first heard about this early this month on the day it happened, a source at the Richmond Times-Dispatch got in touch with me and was just like, hey, man, I don't know if you know what's happening, but we just found out that quite a few people out of the Richmond Times-Dispatch were laid off. And it was just surprising. I don't think in the newsrooms that I, I spoke with the managers in newsrooms, the top level managers might have known that right. this was coming. But for the journalists, it was just a shock. Right. And immediately, I think the, the conversation was like, well, even Warren Buffett can't save newspapers. Right. But as I started looking into this and I started asking around, like people were saying, you know, if you were paying attention to some of the things Warren Buffett has been saying since he bought those papers in 2012 to now, he has kind of changed his tune. And I went back and read them. And sure enough, you know, around this time last year, Warren Buffett gave a quote to uh, Politico's playbook saying, quote, newspapers are going to go downhill. And he said basically what you said before, most newspapers for the transition to the Internet just hasn't worked in digital. Right. Interestingly enough, what I wanted to try and find out in my story was what the papers had been doing in the past four years to kind of shore up their own sustainability and, and ensure that they were going to stick around. And I didn't really find much. In fact, what I found was that, well, I'll just tell you the headline of the story I wrote. Warren Buffett's newspapers deploy familiar playbook as their fortunes do. The papers are they're just going to focus more on digital content. They're going to try and find ways to serve their advertisers better in the digital world. I don't know if anybody actually has an answer. I don't even know what that really means in practice. It's kind of like we're in this weird time where it's like cut your way to prosperity and just like hope something changes in the industry <laughs> right. within the next couple of years and we all right. kind of figure it out. Right. Um, this is where all the sort of vague corporate speak comes in about digital reinvestment and whatnot. It's, yeah. it's sort of wishing yeah. on a, a prayer at this point. But you had this one you had this one snapshot, which I thought was just such a great encapsulation and sad encapsulation of sort of the state of a lot of these local newspapers. You were talking about the press of Atlantic City, which since 2013, when it was acquired by Berkshire Hathaway, it's sort of employed the typical playbook for a lot of these places that are trying to save local news. It's acquired several weekly newspapers, ostensibly for consolidations. It's shrank staff. It's involved into a more digital-centric newsroom. Its audience has grown. It's launched a bunch of multimedia offerings. And yet, all of these underlying factors change, and the paper was forced to lay off 12 employees as part of the Berkshire Hathaway cut. So they're doing all this stuff. They're putting all this extra work into it. Right. And you're right. Guess what? So that paper, like, you'd think, okay, I have just saw it. So when I, when I looked into that, I was like, okay, well, I just found maybe a success story here. And then, then I find out, well, did, were you one of the papers that laid off people? Uh, yeah, we had to lay off 12. And so the obvious question is like, what does that mean? You did all this stuff. Like, what, it didn't work? And the, the quote I got from the editor of the Press of Atlantic City was that, yeah, some of it is, is our fault. As news operations, we, we haven't been quick to offer enough digital solutions to our customers. Right. You know, that's what the, that's what's going And I just don't know, like, okay, so that's that's where we're going now. 
But I guess we'll just have to keep an eye on some of these papers. Right, definitely. Well, Corey Hutchins, thanks so much for coming on and breaking it down for us. I really appreciate it. Hey, you bet. On Sunday, a Cleveland man uploaded a video to Facebook showing him fatally shooting an elderly man in what appeared to be a random act of violence. Shortly after, the same man admitted to the killing on Facebook Live, and over the next few hours, the videos were viewed by thousands before they were eventually flagged by users and deleted by Facebook. It's the latest instance of graphic images shared across the tech giant. And joining me now to discuss its response to this episode are Emily Bell, director for the Tau Center for Digital Journalism, and Oscar Renner, CGR's Tau editor. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks. So we've seen Facebook videos showing the immediate aftermath of police shootings. We've seen images of torture on Facebook. And now this. Emily, you said the other day this is a worst-case scenario for Facebook. Why and what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think the act itself and the video itself are really horrible. And they're still out there. So you, we were actually just looking for them before the podcast to see how easy it is to find. It's incredibly easy on YouTube, no longer available on Facebook Live, obviously. But when I say the worst case scenario, I think it's because of the timing as well as the type of incident. So when Philando Castile was shot by the police and his girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, filmed it last year, which was a very famous um, sequence. It felt like that also was somebody, you know, effectively dying on camera. But it was a sort of an act of witnessing of kind of civic good. This was an act of violence, which it felt as though, you know, the component of having a camera being able to film it and then upload it, because I think it was not the actual shooting was not streamed live. That's my understanding of it, that it was it was uploaded subsequently, even though the shooter did appear live on Facebook. Why is it bad? Because I think that Facebook has now acknowledged that it's got a role in curating and at least, you know, kind of it has a responsibility as a type of new publisher. So they've admitted that. Mark Zuckerberg started talking about it. And then almost as soon as that happens, you have pretty much, you know, a case of just inadequate oversight and and inadequate reaction as well. You know, this is up for several hours and 20,000 people saw it. That's not a blip. That's not just a kind of like a few people seeing it before they catch it. Also, it's a shame because I remember when the Philando Castile video happened, we were saying it's only a matter of time before this is used through the eyes of somebody who is the killer or a terrorist incident or something. So we knew this was coming for at least six months. And the fact that Facebook wasn't really able to step in and prevent that only magnifies the responsibility that they have and that they really didn't fulfill. Yeah, I'm actually surprised that it hasn't happened to this point, or at least with more instances. Facebook PR folks put out a series of statements basically saying that we need to improve our reporting flows. And by way of coincidence, this killer actually took his own life uh, just minutes before Mark Zuckerberg was preparing to take the stage at Facebook's F8 Developers Conference the other day. He said in a somewhat vague and awkward fashion, quote, we have a lot of work and we will keep doing all we can to prevent tragedies like this from happening. What is the proper response in this situation, Emily? What what should they be saying? It is an interesting question because um, they haven't necessarily done anything wrong and they're not encouraging this type of material to appear on the platform. I think sort of ultimately what they're aiming for or what they're working on is a mixture of human uh, moderation, but mostly actually automated moderation, which means being able to detect incidents that need to be deleted or taken down sort of immediately. Um, And the ugly truth about that is that actually the artificial intelligence that gets you there 
um, particularly around image recognition, is kind of getting there, it's developing. But you actually need to carry on using training data, you know, which means that sort of for Facebook to be effectively able to develop it in a way they need that sort of current use of Facebook to continue. So this issue about whether they would actually just stop Facebook Live and say it's too risky, there are three options here. One of which is you just say, it's too risky, we're not going to do it, um, and we're going to stop it. The second one is to get moderation correct. And the third one is to not really do anything about it at all, and to make the argument that you are just a platform. So again, sort of, you know, put yourself in the position of an ISP or a telecoms operator and say, you know, we're not actually responsible for this. Facebook's kind of stepped out of the possibility of I think it, it's no longer got plausible deniability. So that leaves us with moderation or, or stopping. Well, it's funny, during the F8 conference, the Tau Center had a watch party for the wow. the Mark Zuckerberg announcement Guys are yesterday. going crazy over there. We didn't invite him. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next year. It was wild. <laughs> um, but we were sitting there watching Mark and others, if I may call him by his first name, talk about the future of augmented reality and, you know, display some of the great advances they've made in terms of image recognition and being able to not only recognize human figures and other objects in images, but also to see how they're positioned. The entire time we were watching it and saying, this is the glossiest version of how this is going to be presented. Uh, what happens when somebody uses the same technology, immediately you think about the surveillance state and how computers are able to interpret images, but also, you know, if you're able to mark places or things in the real world with your own annotations or notes. So the example they gave was like a menu at a sandwich shop and your friend has actually like written on the menu like, I recommend this sandwich. But what happens when that same technology is translated to something like police shootings where family members go through and say like, my son was killed here or something like that? Like what what are the actual real world applications of some of these things? Have there been any in-depth predictions or suggestions for what moderation would look like for actually integrating humans into the process in a little bit more well, active way? Well, they have, a, they have a version of what is known as sort of collaborative filtering, which is partially done by mechanistic sort of, you know, machine learning and visual image processing, and partially through sort of you know, actual kind of humans. But the problem is, as we know, Facebook has 2 billion users. And so this idea of how something can be moderated by human beings simply doesn't scale for right. them. As soon as you've got several hundred thousand people simultaneously using something like Facebook Live, the idea that you would have enough moderators to actually sit on each of right. those streams goes away. So we, we know what it would look like, but we don't know how it would A, be accurate enough, and B, be deployed at scale or on live streams. You know, Image recognition technology now can tell you pretty easily if somebody has been shot or if there's blood, but it can also make mistakes, you know, so I think that they will get there with this. It's interesting that they can take down and do take down, as does YouTube, things like um, breaches of copyright on a frequent basis. But that's, you know, that's partly because you have copyright. Um, again, you have, you know, sort of people with copyright bots who crawl the web to look for violations of their own copyright. So you have actually a community there of people who will be sort of moderating or looking for violations themselves. With violence and people who really want to, to you know, terrorism, etc., people who really want to use these platforms for something which is public and shocking, it's pretty hard to stop them at the moment that this becomes about life. 
streaming, you know, because it's just a sort of, it only takes a few seconds. You know, mm. the Cleveland film is not very long before you get to the sort of horrific sort of denouement. And even the best, most keenly attuned artificial intelligence is going to is going to struggle with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I will say just to your point that I'm personally really struggling with this just 2 billion users when I usually think about scale, it's in the millions or hundreds of millions. It's hard for me, a mere mortal, to even comprehend 2 billion people all using the same thing at once. So this is what I've been saying. I've been saying the thing is 2016, Nilska likes me saying this because she's only heard <laughs> it 15,000 times the past week, which is... Um, what we saw in 2016, in a way, was a bit for the information economy, was a bit like 2008 for the financial world. And it was a kind of a, a collapse of a system built on scale and built on real-time trading involving shoddy, missold products, um, where kind of actually sort of, if you like, Facebook is the Goldman Sachs in all of this, too big to fail. Hmm. Um, the election was Lehman Brothers. Sorry, I can, I can extend right. this analogy. <laughs> oh, please go on, yeah. The CDOs, right. they were the uh, Macedonian teenagers. <laughs> right. but, the, but, the, um, but I think, so I think one of the really fascinating things about the next five years in terms of web publishing and particularly in terms of social platforms and its intersection with journalism is going to be the unpicking of scale. Hmm. You know, it's going to be how do we dismantle things like ad tech or at least rebuild it so it's sort of adequate? How do we deal with scale around nuance and culturally specific contexts? You know, how do we actually, they've deployed scale really effectively. And now they're going to have to spend a lot of time unpicking it, I think. Doesn't mean that they won't have billions of users, but you have to find a way where you can segment and personalize for want of a better phrase. Do you think that these changes are going to come from within the platforms or through regulation? I mean, it depends where you are. In Europe, there's obviously a much stronger history of regulation of big tech. Google's been sort of under the cosh there for uh, several years in terms of things like the right to be forgotten laws. Um, There are current sort of, you know, fines that the German government are looking at imposing on platforms should they allow fake news to circulate, you know, up to whatever it is, half half a million, half a million euros, which is quite, quite a lot of money. So essentially, they, it has to happen, I think, at platform level, because until you until you fix the technology, until you think about the basic sort of changing the basic design of some of those um, systems, it's always going to be a sort of a patch. It's the thing that strikes me about Facebook's journalism project, which is great. Um, it's great that they are engaging with the fact that they have a role in this world, but it is about fixing the audience and it's mm. about fixing journalism. It's not about fixing the platform. And as far as I'm aware, we know that fake news is is circulating solely because of journalism, because of people reporting on it. Um, And yet the Facebook response is to say, this is terrible. We must actually sort of fix everything apart from our own core technology, because that's expensive and it's difficult. And it's a harder sell for uh, shareholders on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Do you see any motion whatsoever from Facebook in the last months or so? Yeah, I think they have. I think they've changed. I'm I'm critical of Facebook, but I'm not completely sort of cynical about them. I think that the internal attitude and orientation of the company has changed dramatically in the last, I would say, sort of year to six months. And you can detect that from when you talk to them. 
I think some of their initiatives are incredibly sort of well-intentioned. They're difficult to apply in a particularly effective way. Watching Facebook do journalism is like watching legacy news organisations in 2002 do computer engineering. It's right. like sometimes they do something and you think, hey, it's, it's the dog walking on hind legs. It's not the fact that <laughs> it's done well. It's the fact it's done at all that we're all applauding. And there are reasons for that, which is that they're not, you know, this is not native to how they think and how they do stuff. Um, and we as journalists and journalistic organisations have been have really sucked are the things that they're good at for a long time. So as we get this sort of coming together, um, it's you can't expect them to, to really sort of get it right immediately. The key question is the one that you asked, Dave, which is, has their attitude changed, you know, fundamentally? And I think that there's plenty of evidence, particularly from Mark Zuckerberg's plenteous public outpourings, hmm. to suggest that they are changing how they think about their role. Nasca Renner, Emily Bell, thanks for breaking it down for me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That was our show. Thanks for kicking with us. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Overcast. Leave us a comment or a share or a rating. And go to CJR.org and become a member of the Columbia Journalism Review. Once again, that's CJR.org. Thank you again for kicking with us. We will see you next week. Bye.